0: where the, oh there we go, welcome guests where the preacher doesn't know how to use the microphone. We're glad that you're here this morning and happy 4th of July weekend to everyone who is here and like Jason mentioned in his prayer, uh, please be in prayer for our student ministry as they are in Mexico this week uh, serving at the City of Children and are being a blessing there and so pray for all of those students and adults who are who are going to be away for the rest of the week. And I hope that those who are traveling and maybe watching online or however you're celebrating this weekend, I hope that it is a wonderful uh, weekend for you as we remember Independence Day weekend uh, over the next couple of days. Um, As Jason mentioned earlier in his prayer also, we're in this sermon series that we're calling Life-Changing Conversations with Jesus. And over the course of the summer, Kevin and I have been leading us through a series where we're looking at these different conversations that Jesus has Asking the question, what might Jesus teach us about how we are to have conversations in our world today? Uh, And today we're going to be looking at a passage in John chapter 20. And so if you have your Bible, you can open up to John 20. And if you don't, that's okay. The words will be on the screen behind me. Here we read. On the evening of that first day of the week, when the disciples were together, with the doors locked for fear of the Jewish leaders, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. After he said this, he showed them his hands and sighed. The disciples were overjoyed when they saw the Lord. Again. Jesus said, "Peace be with you, as the Father has sent me, I am sending you. And with that, he breathed on them and said, "Receive the Holy Spirit. if you forgive anyone's sins." and that by believing, you may have life in his name. Let's pray. Dear God, thank you for this morning, for the space and this community that you have gathered together, that we are allowed to be here and turn our hearts to you. And now as we turn our hearts to you through the proclaiming and preaching of your word, I pray That you would give me the gift of preaching and teaching. And that you would give us all the gift of open hearts. That we would hear your voice and be transformed by it more into the image of your son, Jesus. It's in his name that we pray. Amen. In 1998, there was a movie released called The Truman Show. Some of you may have seen it. You may remember. If not, a quick refresher on the plot of the movie. It tells the story of this man named Truman Burbank played by Jim Carrey who is living his life in this quiet and peaceful town of Seahaven Island. He's going about his daily life completely unaware that there are millions of people watching his every move. The Truman Show. You see he lives in this large bubble in the movie that he has no idea exists and there are cameras everywhere watching and recording his every move and broadcasting it to the world in the most popular TV show of the time, The Truman Show. Everyone is aware except Truman Burbank. Until a moment in the movie where some events begin to happen and he begins to piece these clues together that there might be more going on to his life than him just living his life. And so as the next few scenes develop, he is putting these clues together and then there is this turning point moment in the movie where Truman lets everyone know that he realizes what's going on and he looks directly in one of the invisible cameras and he speaks directly to the audience and now everybody knows that he knows what's really going on and this moment in the movie where he turns and addresses the audience through the tv screen is actually a popular technique in movie and films and in books and different storylines that we follow. And this technique is called breaking the fourth wall. You may have heard it before, but the fourth wall is that invisible wall that stands between the story that's happening and the viewer who is watching it. The fourth wall is that assumed agreement between those who are watching the story and those who are telling the story. But breaking the fourth wall is a technique that is sometimes used in movie or film or literature or TV, where that fourth wall is broken, and the audience who is watching is directly addressed. And so if you've seen The Office, or if you've seen Wayne's World, or Ferris Bueller, or Deadpool, or my personal favorite, Saved by the Bell, then you know this experience of that breaking The fourth wall where you're directly addressed by someone in the storyline. And if you've ever been on the receiving end of this breaking the fourth wall, then you know the effect that it has on you as a viewer. You feel more invited into the story. You feel more intimately connected with the story that's unfolding. And if I were to sum up one of the ways to describe what John is doing in our passage today It is that he is having this moment where he breaks the fourth wall, so to speak, to invite us deeper into this story of Jesus. John, for 20 chapters, has been telling the story of Jesus, telling this good news of Jesus story after story after story. And he's almost to the end of this gospel, and then he has a moment where he breaks the fourth wall and he turns to us and he says these words. Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book. But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. John breaks that fourth wall, and he turns to us, and he tells us why he's writing his gospel, why he's telling this story of Jesus. And he says, the reason that I am writing this for you, for us, is so that you might believe. And that word believe is a really important word in John's gospel. John is going to use this word believe nearly a hundred times throughout his entire gospel. But what's really interesting about this word is that he never uses it in the form of a noun, but he always uses it in the form of a verb. In other words, he never uses the word belief. He always uses the word believe. And by doing that, he's trying to communicate something about what he believes it means to be a person of faith. To be a person of faith means to be a person of faith-ing. That belief is not some distant abstract thing that we can analyze from a distance, but we are believing people. Belief is about being active. Belief is something that is alive. It is vibrant. We are believing people, not belief people. And so for John, he wants us to be those kinds of people who believe in Jesus, who are invited into this story, who become a part of it and let it shape and animate and move our lives in dynamic ways. And when you read this, it makes sense that John would address us at this point in the gospel because of the story that he tells right before this. It's that story that we just heard read that a lot of us know, that a lot of us have typically called the story of doubting Thomas, which I personally don't like that title for this story, It's never in the text called the story of Doubting Thomas. And if you think about it, usually when we say Doubting Thomas, we we kind of do a couple of things that I don't like that we kind of impose on the text. The first is, by calling this a story of Doubting Thomas, I think we mislabel the nature of Thomas. And by that I mean, when we call him Doubting Thomas, we usually kind of have an air of disappointment. Kind of, how could someone want more proof after Jesus had been raised to the dead we kind of pat Thomas on the head but I don't think that's really fair to appreciate the perspective of Thomas if you think about his perspective it makes total sense what he requests in this closing scene in John's gospel just imagine this from his perspective there he is with Jesus for three years following him going through ups and downs going through hills and valleys Coming into this deep and intimate relationship with this man who becomes not just a teacher, but a lord and master. And he's following him and following him. And then out of nowhere, his friend is killed in one of the most horrific ways possible. And for three days, Thomas is left to kind of wonder and wander in his grief. He is left to, to be uncertain about what his future holds. All of his dreams and hopes feel like they are crushed forever. And then, three days later, his closest of friends, these other disciples, come to him and say, we have seen the Lord. And so from Thomas' perspective, you would want to be able to see Jesus too, You would want to be able to have the same experience that your closest friends for the last three years actually got to experience. Of course, of course you would want to see Jesus. Of course you would want to touch him and be in his presence in the same way that your friends, these other disciples were. I think it's unfair to call Thomas doubting Thomas. If we're going to call Thomas anything, let's call him not doubting Thomas, but desiring Thomas. He desires this deeper experience of Jesus. And, and that's one reason why I don't love calling this story the story of Doubting Thomas. And the second reason is simply because when we call it the story of Doubting Thomas, we, we miss the nature of Jesus that I think is so important for us to see. Because what we see in the person of Jesus in this moment is this beautiful picture of who Jesus is. Jesus is Fully aware of the desires of Thomas. Jesus is fully aware of what he wants. Fully aware of those things. And then what happens a week later? Almost an identical scene unfolds. The same room where those disciples were before, except this time. Thomas is with them. John uses the same exact language to describe Jesus showing up and appearing among them. In the exact same way as a whole week ago, he says to them, peace be with you. But then the camera zooms in on this intimate scene between Thomas and Jesus. Where Jesus calls Thomas close to him. Where Jesus invites him to see the wounds, to see the scars, and to actually touch them. He offers him his scars. He invites him as close as he possibly can get. This past week, I was trying to put Everly to bed. And the reason why I say trying is because bedtime these days feels more like a hostage negotiation than actually a bedtime routine. Because it feels like I'm trying to negotiate with her and she's trying to extend bedtime and extend bedtime and extend it. And so we go back and forth. Every night, it seems. And so, this past week, we had this really interesting moment where she used a new tactic. She told me, as I was about to leave the room, she goes, Dad, leave the door open. I said, Leave the door open? I said, I always close the door. I said, Why do you want me to leave the door open? She's like, Because I want to be able to see you. I want to know that you are close. And I stood there a moment and I kind of processed her words. And then, kind of unexpectedly and unplanned, I just put my hand right here on her chest, and she wrapped her arms around my hand. And I said, do you feel my hand? She goes, yeah. I said, do you feel how close I am to you right now? She goes, yeah. I said, even when I leave, even when you can't see me in just a few minutes, remember this moment. Remember this is how close I am to you all the time, even if you can't see me. I walked out of the room, I closed the door, and then as I was closing the door, this story that I had been wrestling with all week with Thomas and Jesus kind of popped into my head. And I kind of had this aha moment where I realized that in this moment with with Jesus and Thomas, Jesus isn't so much scolding Thomas here as much as is Jesus is summoning Thomas. That, That Jesus is summoning Thomas into this deeper relationship with him that he is summoning him as close as he possibly can get to him because he knows that in very soon he's not going to be able to see him anymore, but he wants him to remember how close that he is. This is a tender, intimate, vulnerable moment where Jesus offers himself to Thomas and calls Thomas as close to him as he possibly can. What's fascinating and I think so important for us to pay attention to is not just the fact that Jesus is willing to respond to Thomas's desire, but it's the way that he responds to Thomas's desire that I think is so important. And that's the thing that I think we need to pay attention to as we think about being people who have life-giving conversations or try to have life-giving conversations. I think what we see modeled here by Jesus is something important for us to pay attention to as we think about what are the kinds of people we're going to be when we speak and have conversations with others. And here's the way that I would say it. Life-changing conversations happen, not just because of what we speak, but also because of the way that we speak. Life-changing conversations happen, not just because of what we speak, but also because because of the way that we speak what is so important I think for us to notice in this passage between Jesus and Thomas is how intimate and personal and vulnerable of a moment it is for Jesus to act this way towards one of his disciples even when he's in this place of disbelief and doubt and if you can see that glimpse of who Jesus is you're also going to see that glimpse of who Jesus is in the stories right before this one Because what do we have? We have at the beginning of John 20, what? Mary, deep in grief, she thinks someone has stolen the body of her Lord. And she's weeping. And what does Jesus do? He comes to her and he speaks her name, Mary. And it's not just the speaking of her name that is so personal, it's she hears it in the tone of the Savior that she had grown to know over the last many years. You read the very next story, and what do you have? You have this group of disciples who were so afraid that they have the doors locked on this house. And what does Jesus do? He comes to them, he shows up, and he offers them peace. And he doesn't just offer them peace, but he also breathes on them and commissions them to go out into the world. Breathing on them is this intimate, personal, vulnerable act on behalf of Jesus towards these disciples and then you get to Thomas and you see more of the same Jesus knowing that Thomas is in this place of doubt knowing that he has these deep desires and him calling him as close as he possibly can not just saying look at this but also touch these very scars and wounds put your hands right here put your hand here don't doubt believe and if I were to, to sum up what I think we see in these three stories of Jesus, if I were to, to describe them with, with a couple of words, I would say that the Jesus that we see in John 20 is this Jesus who is gentle and humble. And the reason why I say that is because, like I've said, all of these are very vulnerable moments between Jesus and his disciples. And if you've ever been in a vulnerable moment, you know that those are the moments where a person's heart is truly revealed. And if you think about this as a moment where we see the heart of Jesus, what's really interesting is if you read through all four Gospels, there's only one place in all four Gospels where Jesus Himself describes His heart. And He does that in Matthew 11, where He says these words Come to me. All you that are weary and are carrying heavy burdens, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you. Learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. The one place where Jesus describes the nature of his heart, he uses the words gentle and humble. The one time where Jesus is trying to teach his disciples and teach the crowds the kind of person that he is at his deepest core, he uses the words gentle and humble. And I think that is the Jesus that we see in John 20. I think that is the Jesus that we see changing the life of each of these disciples. What moves Mary from grief to joy? Hearing her name gently and humbly called out, by Jesus? What moves these disciples from fear to joy and then to being commissioned? Jesus gently breathing on them the very breath of the Spirit and having the humility to hand his mission of forgiveness over to these individuals. What moves Thomas from this place of doubt to this place of belief? This Jesus who gently and humbly calls him as close to him as he possibly can get. And what about us? If any of us have been following Jesus for a while, you know all of those emotions. You know deep moments of grief and sadness. You know those deep moments of fear and anxiety. You know those deep moments of doubt and disbelief. And if you've ever been there... One of the things that John wants us to know is that the Jesus who comes to meet us there, and he always comes to meet us there, is a Jesus who is gentle and humble in heart. It's not just that Jesus is willing to come to us, it is the way that he comes to us. It's not just that he's willing to speak to us, but it is the way that he speaks to us as his disciples as people who are not just called to this gentle and humble Jesus, but who are also sent out to be gentle and humble people in the world, that I think what we see here in Jesus should shape the kind of conversations that we have, the ways that we speak as men and women of faith, that we are to be people who speak with gentleness and humility, which is not, let me personally confess, the easiest thing for me to do. I was reading a book recently by a guy named Scott Sauls, and it's called A Gentle Answer, Our Secret Weapon in an Age of Us Against Them. And I found the book helpful, but also convicting, because he called out a lot of the stuff that I can personally struggle with. And there's a lot in the book that I think is really helpful as he kind of makes constructive steps about how to be more gentle Christians in the world. But it was his opening conversation, it was his opening statement in the introduction that that I found so convicting. Here's how he starts the book. He says this, in our current cultural movement moment, outrage has become more expected than surprising, more normative than odd, more encouraged than discouraged, more rewarded than rejected. Outrage undergirds each day's breaking news It's a part of the air we breathe, a native language, a sick helping of emotional food and drink to satisfy our hunger for taking offense, shaming, and punishing. Outrage has become something we can't get away from, partly because we don't want to get away from it. Instead of getting rid of all bitterness, rage, and anger, as scripture calls us to do, we form entire communities around our irritations and our hatreds. Tribes and echo chambers form, social media feeds grow, political pontifications multiply, book deals prosper, podcasts rant and churches split. Outrage sells. For our generation, hate has been commodified. It has been turned into an asset. Outrage sells. For our generation, hate has been commodified. It has been turned into an asset. And like I said, gentleness and humility are not my default response, I, I hate to say, but they're not. I'm so easily lured into those words that can be so tasty sometimes, resentment and bitterness and rage. And, and I thought about this quote and why it convicted me so much. And as I reflected on it personally, I, I realized that part of the reason why this quote was convicting to me is because I can get pulled into these storylines so often. I can get pulled into these other stories that are not the story of Jesus. And whether it's a story in a movie or a story on TV or a story of something that I'm reading on the internet, it's so easy to get pulled into whatever story is being sold and communicated, whatever fourth wall is being broken and inviting me into. And it's so easy for me to get caught up in these things and I realized that it's so easy for me to to buy into these stories stories like there's only an us or a them so make your choice and you better choose us these these stories of that there's only two sides and you have to pick one or else these stories that say that the best way to to get things done is through volume and violence these stories that say if you really want to handle conflict get more bitter get more resentful get more outrageous but none of those stories are the way of jesus none of those stories reflect the heart that jesus points us to that we see in john 20 for i am gentle and humble in heart the story of jesus the story that John wants us to believe in is a very different story than some that we are offered up every single day. I wrestled with a friend about how to end this sermon. My, my friend, who read my sermon before I was going to preach it, told me that I needed to be a little more pointed and give very specific examples. And I kind of leaned in the other way and I said, no, I'm going to leave it a little open-ended. I'm going to let people connect the dots as they think they need to. So we reached a compromise in gentleness and humility. And we agree that maybe it's worth asking some questions, reflecting on some questions in our own life. Questions like, where do I feel outrage? Where do I feel resentment and bitterness and hate? And why do I feel those things? Why is it that I am so outraged by this or that or them? And then also, as we identify what those things are in our own life, and we all have them, to prayerfully consider and to prayerfully ask that God might change our hearts to look more like the heart of Jesus. And that through prayer, over and over again, that God will shape us and turn us into the kinds of people who reflect the gentle and humble Savior that we see in Jesus. This Jesus who... No matter where you are this morning, no matter if you're deep in grief, if you are deep in disbelief, if you are deep in fear and anxiety, if you are deep in hatred and outrage, Jesus still comes and meets us there. Jesus still comes and finds us wherever we are. And he offers, he offers us our very name. He calls us by name. He breathes on us the breath of life. He offers us his very scars and calls us as close as we possibly can get to him. And it's from that place that we are sent out into the world to not just live a certain way, but to speak a certain way. And so this week, my prayer for us is that we would strive to be gentle and humble in all that we do and all that we say. Let's pray. God, thank you for calling us to you. We need to be called again and again. We get off track. We lose focus. We get distracted. We get caught up in false stories. We get caught up in false stories about Jesus. I pray you would call us back to your heart and that we could be there and rest there and be transformed from that place. And in due time and in due season, you would send us back out into the world to be your people who reflect you in all that we do. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. If you have any response to the invitation this morning, you can come forward and we can take your response. We can baptize you into Jesus. If you would rather not come to the front and you have prayer requests that are on your heart and you would like someone to pray with you, We have shepherding couples in the back who are more than happy to meet with you and pray with you. Whatever your response is, if you have one, you can do that now while we stand and sing.